Um, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing me to stand right here and just have a conversation about you. Lord, I give you praise for all that you're going to do today. Lord, I thank you for the words that you are speaking, Lord. I thank you for speaking to everybody individually, Lord, to show us how to just, just be able to witness to somebody, to be a blessing to somebody, Lord, to give somebody that life, to give somebody hope. Lord, we don't know what people are going through on our, just when we go to the gas station or when we're, when we're walking by. We don't know what, what they were contemplating. Maybe they were contemplating suicide and maybe that smile just changed their world. Lord, I think it's that serious. Lord, I thank you for just, thank you for showing us how to be prayed up, Lord, so that we can do that, Lord, so that we're not so focused on our own issues. Because I know we, all of us have issues that we have to deal with, Lord, but show us how to stay afloat. Lord, and I give you praise for all that you're going to do. In Yeshua's name, and Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Ashir Kedeshana, B'mitzvotah, V'tzivanyu, La'asok Be'devrah Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commandments and commanded us to engross or immerse ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Well, I have some show and tell for y'all today. The boys know. What am I looking for, boys? What am I getting? The boat. I have a boat here, and this is my show and tell for the day. This is um, Caleb and Aaron's boat when they were little, little bitty babies playing in the tub. And I thought this would go perfect with cultures, and I'll explain. Um, the statement is very simple. It's a big deal. But I think after this statement, it'll make sense. I can just stop talking and it'll make sense, hopefully, of what I'm trying to convey. Um, this boat is designed to float continually. I almost forgot what I... <laughs> the boat is designed to float even when situations are on the outside, when we, uh, we do not allow all the situations to come in from the outside, if that makes sense. No. <laughs> That does not make sense. Okay, let me just explain it the way I thought. I've been meditating on it on the way, and I just forgot what I was trying to say. This boat is designed to float when we don't allow things from the outside to get on the inside. Visualize that. We are kind of like this boat going through life. When we, our boat, us, we are, we're going through this ocean of life, and when we allow things to get on the inside of us, what happens to our boat? It begins to go down. It begins to go down because we've allowed stuff from the outside to get on the inside of us. And my goal, what I was trying to say here, is when we allow life, which is the culture around us, to get on the inside of who we are, our boat begins to sink. That's what I'm getting at. And we need to do our due diligence to stay away from those things that will sink our boat. And sometimes those things that will sink our boat, sometimes it's us, just to be honest. Sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's things around us. But we have to do our due diligence to stay away from those things. How should we respond to our culture? How do we respond to our culture? Because all of us, we live in a culture. If not, we're... We're just lying to ourselves. But we all live in a culture, and we have a certain culture. How do we respond, whether it's positive or negative? That's something I want to read. It says, thus we have learned 
One who says something in the name of its speaker brings redemption to the world. This is from the Perkeia vote, Ethics of the Fathers. As it says from Esther 2.22, Esther told the king in Mordecai's name. Let me read again. Thus we have learned one who says something in the name of its speaker brings redemption to the world. What does that mean? Does that mean I need to cite everything that I say? What's the big deal with that? When I read it, I was like, what's the big deal? And I got this from an internet source. It says, I'm a big fan of this prescription. It makes sense to me as a fundamental, as a fundamental of intellectual honesty in all realms, including that of Torah. As such, I certainly like the idea that practicing and promoting it brings redemption. However, I don't really know what it means. Let me read this. It says, what, does the sa- what did the sages mean when they taught that proper citation brings redemption to the world? How can proper citation bring redemption to the world? Kind of doesn't make sense, but I'll explain here then. Did they mean that in an esoteric sense, proper citation hastens the messianic redemption, like the notion of adding bricks to the temple? If so, why this linkage in particular? And I had to look up the word esoteric. I am that picky. Uh, did you know that esoteric, the definition means intended for or likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest? So let me read that first sentence um, with that understanding of esoteric. That just means only a small number of people are going to understand it. So it says here, in an esoteric sense, proper citation hastens the messianic redemption. Maybe that's one reason we need to cite things. Did they mean that like in the story in Esther, proper citation leads to lives being saved? And we remember the story of Esther. So because we're citing things, is that going to lead to lives being saved? I don't know. Another idea. Did they mean redemption in some other way? If so, what? And how does proper citation lead to it? And then a few more. Were they just making a hyperbolic? And hyperbolic just means an exaggerated, overstated statement. I think that's probably what they were doing. Um, another reason here. Let me read again. Were they just making hyperbolic um, biblical flourish to end the list of habits? So let me make this statement again. It says, one who says something in the name of its speaker brings redemption to the world. I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it simply means we care more about the truth than our ego. This or any time we talk in front of people, it's not a show. It should never be a show. It's not about my ego. Have you ever listened? We all do, I think. We listen to some, and sometimes the teaching is not really about the teaching. The teaching is about their ego. The teaching is about how I can look good in front of a group of people. How I can have words of, because some people are great speech makers, right? I don't think it's a negative thing, but I think the goal at any congregation or church is we're trying to get to the truth, period. And when we know the truth, the truth is going to help us to live and change our lives. That's the bottom line. It's not about egos. And if it's ever about egos, I think we've missed it completely. So when they make that statement, we want to cite things. We want to make sure that we say who said this because I don't care who said it. What I care about is that it's being said. I care about the words going out. Out of It doesn't have to be out of my mind. I don't care if whoever says it. I want to know that this is what I need to do to change my life and help somebody else. From the beginning, it only makes sense that God wants his culture to be our culture. 
It's so simple that we mess it up. God chose the Jewish people to bring us the Messiah. And that's evidence through the word. We can go, we're not going to go there, but it's so clear if you're reading the scripture that you understand that the Torah, the Messiah, and all of that came through the Jewish people. Unless you're reading some other book. I don't know what you're reading. It's, I don't know, you're reading something else. But that's the, that's the main issue here. And another main issue is God loves his people so much. And I don't want to just say his Jewish people. God loves us, all of us, so much that he's, bring, he's brought us his truth in a powerful way. He used the Jewish people as a people to bring this word to us. And when we finally get it, we need to be so grateful that God has opened up his, his world to us. It's awesome. It should be that precious. Um, I didn't grow up learning about the festivals, the feasts. I didn't know any of this. So every time I learn a lot of these new things, I'm like a kid in a candy store. It's like, wow, you mean we should have been doing this? This is what the word says? Where'd this come from? Never heard this before in my life. And I think I have a, I have a little, Daphne knows, I got a little book at home. And the book is what I did not know and things that I now know that has changed my life. It's simple, but it's a big deal because what I'm doing, I'm, be, I'm being very um, intentional on my actions because I'm saying, you know what? I didn't know this. I know this now. This is going to help me change my life. Very specific. Because a lot of things, I was just in left field. I was just way out that I didn't know. And I think all of it, and I think we all are that way. That's just the way it is. Our culture should benefit and help each other. Our cultures. See, even though we learn from the Jewish culture, I have a lot. My culture and your culture, most of us in here, what's our culture? Think about it. Our culture is American. We're Americans. That's what we are. We are Americans. Most of us, we have the same type innuendos. Even though you're looking at me, I am, according to society, a black American. Some of you, because my skin is, oh, kind of light brown. Maybe a little dark brown. Someone who has a little lighter brown skin tone, they're still considered a black American. Somebody whose skin tone is really light, they're not considered a black American anymore. They're considered what? A white American. And that's our society. That's our world, right? But are our cultures that much different than each other? Not really. They're really not. It just depends on, because I can, I have, I have several, I have a few examples here. Um, when, I was, when I was in middle school, kind of sad, one of my best friends, his name was um, Matt Slavens. I shouldn't say names. Anyway, it was in middle school, but that was years ago. His name was Matt Slavens. We were cool. We were good friends. I went over to sleepovers at his house, and it was a great situation. But he wasn't the same color as I am. He was white. He was a white kid, according to our culture. And when we got to, we were good friends all the way through middle school. But when we got to high school, something tragic happened. And it was, words were not spoken. And it was kind of sad. We both just went our separate ways. We barely even talked to each other when we got to high school. Why? Honestly, because I allowed, and he allowed the culture around us to dictate who we hung out with. That was sad. It was really sad. Because in high school, at least back then, it was, it wasn't sad, but it was very, you could see the segregation. The black kids hung out over here, the white kids over here, and that's just the way it was. And y'all know what I'm talking about, right? 
It is. It's a lot better now, but back then it was just very clear. And again, we allowed that culture to permeate who we were. And that's, that's all it was, because there was no issue. And we never really, I seen them in the hallroom, barely even look at each other. It was kind of sad that that happened. You know, but I know this type of situation happens all the time. Um, another situation that I thought I'd mention about culture, when I was in elementary school, um, I was the first black treasurer in my elementary school at W.T. Moore Elementary School in Tallahassee, Florida. Great. I didn't know anything. I was a kid. I didn't think it was a big deal. It, we, I ran for student government. I won this election, and now I'm the treasurer. I really didn't know what I was doing, okay? I just, I was just happy I won. It was great. But my point of saying this, I don't even know what I did. I just went to meetings. We made some decisions. But my point of saying this is they took myself and other kids that looked like me, and they took us in a room, and they had a conversation with us. And the conversation was, you need to hold your head up high. You need to not look down about yourself. You need to be strong. But you know who else was in the room with me? Kids that looked like me. It was only black kids. Okay, there was no white kids at all in the room. It was just black kids. And they made a big deal out of it that I need to not be so concerned about my race. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't care. I was a kid. Kids don't even think about race because it's natural not to think about race. You know when kids start thinking about race? when we tell them, or when they see the culture around us that says that you shouldn't do this. Little black kids, little white kids, they play together, they don't even think nothing. And that's just the way it is. And that's the way it should be. And to honestly, us adults and the world mess it up. Am I telling the truth? I know when you watch the news, half the time, most situations, I'd say most, I don't want to use the word most, but a lot of situations, it turns out, and it always gets back to race. It'll be a black or white issue, and it shouldn't be. And my, and my thing is, we should not allow the dominant culture to get into this brain as much as it will try, because it's going to happen if we allow it to. The thing is, we're all the same as far as, as God is looking at us. That's just the way it is. Race, to me, is like, and I think I said it last week, is like looking at different colors of cows. I think I said colors of cows. Some cows are red, some are brown, some are white. You think the cows are arguing about the race? No, cows don't care. And that's how it should be with us. It just does not matter. We should not allow the world to push us into that mold. And that's something that I am so grateful. I'm so grateful when I hear um, Rabbi Scott and Rabbi Renee as well, when they start to talk about their culture, when they start to talk about how they were raised as far as being Jewish. Because that is so foreign to me. When he starts talking about the Sabbath and what they did at the dinner table, we were clueless. When me and Daphne started learning about um, Jewishness and what God was speaking on as far as us following his word, we, we were clueless. So we started following the Sabbath. We got a little card from, um, what was it? It was, it was a certain ministry, find a card, and we just read it. And we just went step by step to follow this because we were clueless. But I think that's what God wants to do with us with everything. He wants to take us as innocent as we can and follow him as much as we can. And don't allow stuff to come into our brain. Um, as well as, and I want to mention uh, Rabbi Rene as well, because Rabbi Rene likes, um, I love hearing his stories about El Salvador. 
and he's talking about the military. I love that because guess what? We're not just learning the word. We're learning different cultures, and that's good. And see, what happens, and the title of my message was, What Happens When Jewish, African, and Greek Cultures Collide? Well, sometimes this happens, which means we're kind of together, you know, one connects with the other. Sometimes this happens, and sometimes this happens. Right? But that's the reality. What should happen? I think what should happen and what actually happened a lot of times it's different things and we just need to understand the difference. And we need to say, you know what, when I come in contact with other cultures, I want to learn from the culture. Because I can take something from El Salvador culture. I can take something from the Jewish culture. Something from the African culture. From the Greek culture. Even though I am, my ancestry is African because I've done my DNA. But do I know anything about Africa, honestly? No, I didn't grow up in Africa. I know absolutely nothing about Africa. You know what I learned about Africa? Is when I do Dr. Google. Everyone knows Dr. Google, right? Yep, or I do my research. And I don't think it's a negative thing because I am very proud to be an American. I am very proud of my American culture. And I think we need to be proud of where we come from. And it is a culture, but I can share a lot of my culture with those who are African or who are Greek or who are whatever. And we need to understand that. So I have some, just some examples of what happened when different cultures collided. Hopefully it's not like this. Sometimes it is like this. Great example this week, we're celebrating what? Hanukkah. What happened when those cultures collided at that moment? Yeah, that's what happened, right? It was a war when that culture collided. Do we have cultures that collide and we have wars all the time? Absolutely. Could it have been different? Yes. I think it could have been completely different. Depends on the situation. And I have a story here we're going to read in a minute that talks about that. But I have here a situation where cultures collided. According to a traditional story recorded in a letter of Aristeus, the Torah was translated into Greek at the request of Ptolemy. He was Greek. Ptolemy II. And 70 or 72 Jewish scholars translated the Torah from Hebrew to Greek. This is where we get the Greek Septuagint from. And I think most of y'all have heard that story. It's simple, but it's a big deal. Because that means the Grecian leaders say, you know what? We want to learn the Torah. We want to know about the Torah. Was that a positive interaction? Absolutely. They wanted to learn. And the Torah has been translated into how many different languages now? Wow. A lot, right? And those are positive. And that's, and that's how God is taking his culture and sharing it with the world. And that's the whole point, and that's how it should be. And this was one encounter of the Greek culture with the Jewish culture, and it was, I believe it was a positive voice. I believe the group with the loudest voice in our world will dominate the culture. The group with the loudest voice. That means we, it's not, when I say loud, it doesn't mean I need to go out and shout out in the streets that we're celebrating Hanukkah. No. But if enough of us are celebrating Hanukkah, if enough, of, if enough of us are following the feast, enough, enough of us are following the Torah, people around you are going to just follow. You don't have to say a word. You just got to do it. You just need to be it. You ain't even got to talk about it. Sometimes you can come into a situation, and we know the dominant culture just by you being in the room with 20 people. You ain't even got to say a word. We know who the person is who's maybe in charge or the person who's running things. 
um, like it, uh, exam, I say running things, like at our high school. Uh, my principal, he's, he's been there probably maybe 10 years, excellent principal, but everyone knows who's kind of in charge behind the scenes. I'm just being honest. They're just weird. When I say in charge, if they say it, it's going to happen because they've been there since the building opened and they have that much influence. And I believe that's where God has placed us in our cultures so that we can have that much influence on people around us. And we need to be that confident. We shouldn't be ashamed that we're celebrating Hanukkah or we're celebrating a feast. We need to say, yes, I'm, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity now to take off for all the feasts. I am so grateful. But every time I take off, guess what? That's a conversation. What are you doing? You're a Christian. Yes. Are you Jewish? You know, that, we get all that all the time. But you know what? I'm, I look forward to those conversations now because it's simply an opportunity to share. And that's the way it should be for all of us. All right, let's talk about African culture with, with Jewish culture. Colonialism, definition, is the policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers, exploiting it economically. Hmm, who does that sound like? Sounds kind of like America, huh? It happened. I don't want to fight anybody. Let me read that again. Maybe I'll fight some of y'all. All right. It says that colonialism is the policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country. Because this country wasn't Christopher Columbus' country when he got here, right? Everyone knows that. That's not, we all know that, okay? Um, another country, occupying it with settlers and exporting it economically. And here's a statement that I want to say about the culture and African culture. Did Christianity slash Judaism only become known to Africans through colonialism and oppression? No, I don't believe. I think, that's, I think it's ridiculous, but I believe a lot of people believe that just from talking to people. How did African people come to know and embrace the message of the Torah, of Christianity, of the Messiah? Great question that I'm going to try to answer. The first encounter in the Brit Hadashah was in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. And it, the Messiah spent some time in Egypt. And Egypt, which I have literally argued with people, when, especially when I was in college, about is Egypt a part of Africa? I don't even know what the argument is. But anyway, I've argued with people about that. That's why I put this up. Egypt is Africa. It's in Africa, it's North Africa, unless you're blind and wanna, just wanna re you want to fight. It's okay to fight. But the point is, Egypt is in Africa. And let me read the scripture. It says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and, and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. Our Messiah went to Egypt to spend some time. You think he affected, maybe he was a child, but I guarantee that effect, it definitely affected that culture at that moment. Absolutely it did. Simon of Cyrene. He is from, Cyrene is a country, I didn't put it up here, but it's actually a country in North Africa. He carried the cross of our Messiah. He's African. What was the first official sign of a converted believer from Africa in the Brit Hadashah? Well, let's read um, Acts chapter 8. Verse 26 through 27. This is Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, 
the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to, to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia is Africa. An important official in charge of all the treasury and the candidate, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the message of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. That's one of my favorite parts right there. I'm just going to read that again. It said, then, then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and, and Philip baptized him. All right, I missed a part. Where did it go? Uh, all right, here we go. And the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again. He took Philip away and did not see him again. Whoa. But went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotos and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So did y'all see what happened with Philip, right? He was translated from one place to another. Wow, if that's not string theory, I don't know what it is. Anybody ever, anybody know what string theory is? It's that science has shown that there are other dimensions in science. They have this big, um, I forgot the name of it, but they, they have ways to, from small particles, determine that they can look into another dimension. And that just messes up my brain. And I just think that they're kind of catching up with God's word. That's all, because it's all there. I believe God is in another dimension right now. Even though we're speaking, we have angels that are all around us right now at every moment. He's looking in, which is amazing. That's why he can be at any time, any place that he wants to, because it just makes sense. You think about two dimension. If we only had two-dimensional world, which was, I didn't mean to go here, but if we only have two-dimensional world, we only have a flat plane. Because you only have length and width. But what if I live in three-dimensional world? I can see everything in the, the two-dimensional world, but you can't see me. That's how God is. And I don't think he's just three-dimensional. I don't know what dimension God is. Maybe it's like 29,000 or something. Who knows what it is? But the thing is, that's why God is so awesome. He reveals things to us so that we can show these things to the rest of the world. And I know I got way off topic, and the topic was African cultures colliding with Jewish culture. And I just wanted to show here in the scripture where Philip collided with, who was it? 
the Ethiopian. And that was the cultures that were connecting together. It didn't come through colonialism. It didn't come through a master teaching the slave um, the Bible. I'm not saying that that didn't happen, because that did happen. And I'm grateful that happened. I am grateful that master showed the slave the scripture. Some go, wow, how can you say that? Because he got the scripture. I am so grateful. Yes, it was twisted. I almost hate to put slavery and American slavery in the same name. Because it's not the same thing. And we know here, the scripture, when it talks about slavery, it is not talking about that ridiculous um, thing that happened in this country. It's not. It was almost like a, um, like a helper. Like, uh, what's the name? I forgot the name. Um, indentured servitude. It was like paying a debt, exactly. And honestly, that's a, that's a good thing. And the scripture talks about that continually. So it's not the same thing. I almost want to just change the name. And I don't want to connect them. And, that's what, and I hear a lot of people talk, a lot of atheists. I listen to a lot of debates. And a lot of atheists, they'll bring up the issue of slavery in the scripture. But they're trying to equate slavery like it's American slavery. It's completely different. It's not even the same. We should, we should, I don't know how to change the names. I think the only way to change the name is to just explain it to people. And when we get the opportunity to share, and when I hear those debates, those who are debating, a lot of them, they do an excellent job, and they share that. They share, you know what, it's not the same. The slavery is completely different. So, amen. All right, let's keep going. When Europeans, Greeks, Romans, and Africans began to embrace Christianity or Judeo uh, or Judaism, many began to embrace it with the figures that look like them. Think about that. This painted a picture of Christianity and Judaism that may or not be accurate on a surface level. Think about the pictures that we portray as Jesus. Yes, I went there. I just couldn't help it. You know. We say the white Jesus. Is he the white Jesus? No, honestly, we don't. He's probably lighter than me, most likely. But honestly, it doesn't really matter. But it does matter because some people connect to that and we twist it. And we make it what it shouldn't be. A little interesting fact, I thought. Did you know that in 1495, Leonardo da Vinci began painting the Last Supper on the wall of the refectory dining hall of Santa Maria del Grazia, Grazia in Milan, Italy, and completed it in 1498. That means it took him almost three years to finish his painting. That's pretty impressive to me. So honestly, I think it's an excellent painting. If you look at it, it's beautiful. It's just not accurate. It's an excellent painting. If it takes you three years to do this, I, I bet he'd put a lot of work into it. So we shouldn't, the thing is, we just need to make sure we don't allow that to get inside of us. And the issue is, uh, I say back then, a lot of times people didn't have the Gutenberg printing press was probably around 1500. They didn't have the scriptures like we have it. They didn't have Dr. Google. We didn't have that when we were growing up. At least I say we, my age. We didn't have it where, when I did research back then, I actually had to go to the library and look things up. Some kids like, what is, go to the library and look things up? What's that? That's crazy. You know, I type papers on typewriters. Those are like collector's items now. You know, what's a typewriter? 
Think about it. Can you find a typewriter nowadays? It's tough. Actually, we have one in our media center, and I go down there. I told them I'm going to bring it and show it to the kids. I just do stuff like that. But again, we used to use those, and that was our norm. They couldn't just go look up stuff. So when their leader said something, guess what? They just believed it. When they see a painting of Jesus, and he looks this way, they said what? I guess that's what he looks like. And maybe they didn't spend the time and go do, re they probably didn't have time to do research. They're just trying to take care of their family. They're trying to live from day to day. And that's why we can't, sometimes we try to come with our 21st century mindset and judge those who live in another century. You can't do that. Because if we do that, we're not seeing it from their perspective at all. And it makes no sense. And of course you can read things and you say, I can't believe that they allowed this and I can't believe or think of going back to the slavery thing. I can't believe that this situation happened and they allowed themselves to. I think we, we're ridiculous when we say things like that because we don't know what we're talking about. Because until you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, you can't speak. You just need to learn from them. That's why it's important to learn from other cultures so we can better ourselves and better our world. We need to go back. This ideology led to, I read that. We need to learn how to sift through socially accepted norms with his word. Because there are a lot, and today in um, Torah class, Teen Torah, that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to outline every socially accepted norm that we can find and see what his word has to say about it. I think that's, this is what all of us should do. We should look at socially accepted things and say, is this something that I should follow? Is this something that God would want me to do? We need to learn how to sift through those things all the time. Romans 12, 2 is very clear. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Really, and if you think about it, are we proving this to God? No, you are proving it to you. We're the ones who need, God knows his culture. I ain't got to prove nothing to God. We're just proving it to this brain. Because we are the ones who need help. And I think that's another simple mindset that a lot of us miss. Sometimes we come to God like, you know what? You should be grateful that I came in here and sat down and listened to this message. Whoa, whoa. I am grateful that I am able to stand here and speak. We should be grateful that we're able to come in and sit down and hear a message that's going to move us in the right direction that's going to follow him. Grateful. Um, who said it? Uh, Kennedy. He said, um, think not what I can do for my country, but or what my country can do for me. Okay, I think I messed up. I messed up too many sayings this morning, okay? Just too many. But the point is, don't think that I'm coming to just get something. My mindset should be, what can I give to the situation so that I can better the situation? That should be my mindset, always. And if I don't have that mindset, I need to pray that the Lord will help me get that mindset give y'all an example, kind of off topic, just came top of my head. I remember we were in, uh, we lived in Tennessee. We were in Clarksville, Tennessee. Got to say it that way because it's nice and country. But anyway, we loved it. It was awesome. Um, we were at a church called um, Clarksville Family Bible Church. We were there for years. And I remember I was learning about things like this, just about doing things to help out the situation. And I noticed my pastor, his name was David at the time. He's actually passed away now. But I noticed him out there cutting the grass. And he was the one who cut the grass every single week. That's what he did. And I wanted to give back. 
because I wanted to help. I've been learning about what can I do, so I'm looking around the situation. How can I help? How can I serve? What can I do? I went out and said, hey, Pastor Dave, can I cut the grass for you? He's like, okay, sure. You got a business? I'm like, no, I just want to cut the grass. I just want to help. And it took him a while to release that, but he allowed me to cut the grass. And that was a simple thing, but it's a big deal because I'm looking outside of myself so that I can help my situation. Not that I can come and say, you know what, what am I going to get in this situation? I'm not coming here. If I don't get what I like, then I'm out of here. That's ridiculous. I serve God because he told me to. It's simple. It's very simple. The scripture says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as a man of such. So God said what? That means come and assemble. That means go to church. Go to congregation. Why do I do that? Am I coming because I'm going to have a great message and I'm going to be inspired? I think that's great, but that's not why I do it. I do what I do because he told me to do it. It's that simple. And I think if we do it for any other reason, we're doing things out of feelings. And if you're doing things out of feelings, feelings are going to do what? Like in five minutes. They're going to change tomorrow because you might not like it. You're going to come here. Somebody's going to say something you don't like. You're going to get a little attitude with them. I'm out of here. You can't talk to me that way. That ain't why you came. If you believe that God called you to be here, I don't care if they're calling your names when you walk through that door. You sit, your, anyway, you sit down and you learn because that's who God has placed you in. God has called us to fulfill his word. That's what he's called us to do. That's way off topic, so let me get back here. Four types of people. This is so important. It's simple, but it's a big deal. And I want you to locate yourself. We are either conformers, innovators, ritualists, or rebellion, or rebellious, if you want to think of it that way. Which one do you think you are? Somebody say, none of the above. All right, let me explain. A conformer. A conformer is someone who accepts the socially accepted goal, and you accept the socially accepted means to achieve that goal. Does that make sense? Most of us are conformers, just to be honest. It's not a bad thing. If you believe, an example I have here is marriage. In my heart, I believe one day I was going to get married. So I believe the socially accepted goal of being married. That's the goal. What are the means to achieve the goal of getting married? What do you think about it? I'm single, so what am I going to do? I need to ask, okay, you need to ask to be married. You need to maybe date. How do you date? Some say courting versus dating. Am I going to do this God's way? Or am I going to do this the world's way? You get the point? So my socially accepted goal is marriage. My socially accepted means of achieving that goal is how many different variations of that do we have? It's ridiculous, right? Some say dating here. Some say no children here. Some say sex before marriage. Anyway, no sex after marriage. You get the point, right? There's a lot of different variations of this whatever over here. Those are conformists. What's an innovator? You accept the socially accepted goal. You believe that you should get married, but you don't accept the socially accepted means to achieve the goal. What are some other ways to achieve the goal of marriage? Or think of lifelong companion. Some people don't believe, they believe they want to be together with somebody, but they don't believe in this institution that we call marriage. So they say, you know what, we're just going to live together for the rest of our lives, and we're just going to act like we're married. Okay, that's, but they're, they're kind of innovators because they don't like the system. 
They just change the system. Even though they say, you know what, we're going to be lifelong together. All right, the next one. Ritualists. You do not accept the socially accepted goal, and you accept the socially accepted means to achieve the goal. I have a good example here. Uh, I know I need to eat better. Yeah, I went there. I won't look at anybody when I say this. All right. I know I need to eat better and improve my health. I know it, but I just keep talking about it but never do anything about it. Did that step on anybody's toes? Should I keep looking up? Anyway. So that's somebody who's living in rich, you're, it's ritualism. Because you're just doing something. You've, you do not accept the socially accepted way to achieve the goal, but you accept the goal. You believe you need to be healthy, but you don't want to do the things you need to do to get healthy. Right? You're just going along the motions. It's kind of like um, in, in school, I tell kids, you know what? Do A, B, and C. You need to come to tutoring. You need to do this right here. Do this over here, and then you're going to get better and learn the situation, right? You're going you're gonna to improve your grade. They don't do A, B, or C, and they come in upset at me about not getting good grades. I don't even know what to say. Most of the time, I'm speechless. I just do this. I just smile. I, I don't know what to tell you. Right? That's what God does to us all the time. God says, do this A, B, and C way, and then you'll have this success, right? When we don't have this, we're not doing A, B, and C. That's ritualism. And all of us have things that we, we know we need to work on, right? We know we need to do certain things. We know what we need to do, but we don't do it. And that's just reality. And rebellion is you don't accept the socially accepted goal, and you don't accept the socially accepted means to achieve the goal. That means you're in complete rebellion. I don't care about eating healthy. I don't care about you. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Do we do that all the time, some things? Yes. And, but I think if we identify ourselves on these situations and we start to say, you know what? I see where I am. What do I need to do to change? That's the whole point. So we can change who we are. We don't want to be a part of this, I like to call it, I've heard somebody say it, the selfie generation. Hmm. How many of y'all... It's not a negative. Don't be afraid. How many of y'all have a lot of selfies? Be honest. Don't lie. Come on. Don't lie. Get selfies. Anyway. So I'm not saying nothing. It's okay. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. Watch out for God's selfies. What is a God selfie? You want to have, I say you, not picking anybody, not saying against the, the selfies, but maybe some of us want to have the image of walking with God rather than have the real thing. Because what does a selfie do? It's just like you're taking a picture of yourself. What if, give you an example, I heard somebody say this, um, President Trump walked through that door and a lot of us wanted to go and maybe take a picture with him, right? Maybe. Want to take a selfie. What if we had an opportunity to get to know him? And some of us would rather take the picture than the, the spend the time to get to know him. Does that make sense? That's what I'm getting at when I say a God selfie. Some of us want to have an image of knowing God without not really knowing him. That's a big deal. Because we can show face all the time. We can come in, sit down, smile, and act like things are going great. But we need to make the time and truly 
spend the time to learn to know him. Because it comes out. We act because we can be fake all we want, but it all comes out in the wash. It all comes out in the end if we're faking. That's just the way it is. It's a reality. It's not a, and again, it's not a negative thing. The thing is, we just need to own up to it. It's like I'm learning how to play chess. We were talking about this earlier. And I can be a great fake chess player. I know the rules. But when I play somebody who really know how to play, guess what? The reality happens. Loss. But you know what? That's the way it is with us with life. We can be fake and have this selfie mentality of being with God. But when the, when the rubber hits the road, the reality hits the you get the point, right? We're going to know the truth. The truth is going to be there. I can watch basketball all day. I love watching basketball. But guess what? When I go out there and play with somebody who really know how to play, guess what? I just, I just got shook. I'm hurt because I really don't know how to play. Maybe I'm working at it. And that's how it is with God. We need to be so intentional with following him. Stop living off of past generations' truth. Every generation must internalize the truth from a fundamental level for themselves. I think a lot of us, and I, I am so into listening to voices in our culture, a lot of us, we get into so many things that really doesn't deal with us a lot. I have not dealt with, personally, a lot of racism. And I know some people want to fight me when I say that. And that's a shame that sometimes I can't even make a statement just me personally, because I am a black man, and some say, you know what, you've dealt with racism, you just don't know it. Well, maybe I haven't. And I think in America, a lot of times we build up things that we really don't need to build up. I know I stepped on some toes there, ready to fight, yep. But I think it's okay. And I think sometimes we get so much into our parent stuff, and I say our parent stuff, we get so much into our another generation stuff that we're not in our own generation. We forget what's going on in our day. I just think that's reality. And that's why I think every generation must internalize the truth from a fundamental level. That's why the gospel is so important in every generation. Sometimes we think it's almost automatic. It's not automatic. Our, and if you talk to kids, some of our kids, I say kids, I don't even want to say kids. Some of us adults are very confused. And we do not understand what it means to be a believer at all. And I think it's our job when we come into situations, we need to unravel that confusion. And sometimes we're confused. That's why it's so important to get into his word and study so that we can know him. And again, as we walk with him closer, I believe every question that I ever ask the Lord, he shows me. I truly believe that. Somebody asked me in class, um, and this happens. Somebody said, Ms. Phil, are you afraid to die? I was like, no. I think the whole class got quiet at that moment. They said, what do you mean I'm afraid of that? You don't, I said, I don't fear death. I don't need to fear death. I know, what, I know what's going to happen to me when I die. And a few of the kids in class, they, they were like, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, I'm glad you made that statement. I was afraid to make it, but now that you said it, I can say something about it. I think we need to be that bold with following him. That I am not afraid of death because I walk with the Messiah. I walk with him every day. I have a relationship with him. And if you know that, people are not going to move you away from that situation because I am not allowing the dominant culture to get into this brain. I am staying, like I used the example, and I messed up that statement earlier. Here's my, uh, my boat. The boat is afloat. 
if, not, if I don't allow water to get into this boat, what's going to happen to my boat? It's going to stay afloat. I'm not going to allow the dominant culture to get in. The dominant culture can be out here. I don't care. It could be wind blowing, whatever. But me, the boat, I'm going to stay afloat because I know who I am. I know my Messiah. I know who I'm walking with. And if we're not that confident, we need to go back and figure out what's wrong with our boat. I mean, we need to go fix the inside. You get the point, right? We need to fix our boat because our boat has a hole. And if your boat has a hole, it needs to become an emergency to fix your boat. And that's how life should be because a lot of us have holes in our boats. And that's just a reality. And some of us, we have holes in our boats and we won't admit it. I ain't got a hole in my boat. Okay, great. Your boat's probably going to sink soon. We'll see what happens. And that's just the reality. And that's why the most important thing I believe on this planet is the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing. I don't think the gospel should be not important, somewhat important, very important. I believe the gospel should be an emergency. It should be that important in our lives. The scripture says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Emet, the Derek, and the Chaim. No one comes to the Father except by me. Eternity is like, I said it last week, is like if you look behind me, if you can visualize a line, visualize one dot on that line. That's your life in comparison to eternity. So the decision that we make now or the decision that we influence someone else to make are that important, and we should never forget that. And I want to read a story that's so important when a Greek culture collided with Jewish culture. Is there two Hanukkahs? According to H.com, I love this story. Some of y'all may have heard it. There may be. There are two Pesachs. You know the two Pesachs? If you're a Tame or unpure, you could partake in the second Passover. I think it's called Pesach Sheni. I believe that's the name of it. There's a story about the Greeks and the Jews in the Gomorrah in Yom 69a that sounds suspiciously like a Hanukkah that could or may have been. It's awesome. And this is in the Gomorrah. This is an outside story that's not in the scripture, but I love reading the Gomorrah or the Mishnah because it kind of puts things in perspective. Sometimes things I didn't understand, and I'll read it in the Gomorrah, and I go, wow, i never seen that before in my life. I didn't see those connections. Let me keep reading. The Gomorrah tells of an incident in Yoma 69a. Is the Kohen allowed to wear the Bigda Kahuna outside of the Beta Mikdash? That's the Bigta Kahuna. That's why I had this picture. That's just the, the priestly garment. And read that again. Is the, Co is the Kohen allowed to wear the Bigda Kahuna outside of the Beta Mikdash? So the Gemara cites an incident when Shimon Hasadik, the, when he wore this outfit, the priestly garment, outside of the temple. And there's actually a, a day, it's called the 25th day of Tibet, Yom Har Grizim, which is the day of the Mount of Grizim. Mount Gerizim was a place where the enemies of the Jews, known as the Kutim, or the Samaritans, lived. The Kutim were plotting to destroy the temple. His simple, in simple terms, 
visualize this letter. In simple terms, a letter to Alexander the Great, His Royal Highness, can we destroy the temple? Signed, the Kutin. Does that make sense? So they want to destroy the temple. You visualize that? That's the Kutin. Alexander the Great, who was the conqueror of these territories that we're not going to talk about, we don't have time, he said, sure, no problem. I want you to visualize that. A group of people inside of this great culture here came to another group of people and said, we want to destroy the Jews. The leader of this day said, sure, no problem. Go ahead, destroy the Jews because they were enemies of the Jews. Well, just to paint a picture, Shimon HaSadik, which was the high priest, he found out about this and he put on the Bigda Kahuna, which is the priestly garment. And he went out with a delegation of other Jews to meet Alexander. It's like he's going to meet the president. But the president is Alexander. He's the leader of the world at this time. They were clutching torches, walking all night until dawn came. Clutching torches, see the light? All night till dawn came. When dawn came, Alexander saw them coming from afar and asked the Kutim, Who are they? They said, They are the Jews that are rebelling against you. As they reached a place called Antipatris, the sun came out in all its glory and in full daylight. So visualize, you have Shimon HaSadik, they have these torches and they're walking towards, so I'm Shimon HaSadik, I'm not. Over here, you have Alexander the Great, they're walking towards them. You see the picture. As Alexander the Great saw Shimon HaSadik approach, he got down off of his chariot and bowed down before Shimon HaTzadik. That's like the president of this great nation is now bowing down to this priest. They said, why, and I say they, they're the Kutin, the enemies, they say, why are you a great king bowing down to this Jew? He told them, this is Alexander, every time I go out victorious in war, I see a vision of this man. He is always going before me in battle. Alexander said to them, said to them, why did you come? Shimon HaSadik said, could it be that the house that prays for you and your kingdom, Alexander, that you be not destroyed, that our enemies, and that he said our enemies would seduce you into destroying that very house? We are praying for you. Alexander was convinced and the temple was saved. I love that story. There's so much into that story. And the story was they're trying to say that it was okay or not okay to wear the Bigta Kahuna outside. But I want you to visualize it. This is Alexander the Great, and you have a high priest that was praying for this leader. How much does this say about our cultures connecting? We need to always pray for our leaders. Always. No matter what. No matter if we like them or don't like them. What if I was what if I was growing up in a dictatorship and I had and I was living under, I don't know, somebody like Hitler? Should I pray for a Hitler? That's tough. That's tough to think about, right? Because obviously we know what he did. But if you look at this situation, when we're put in a culture as a believer, it's not our job to necessarily, because unless I'm in that position, it's not my job to start a revolution. It's not. 
It's not. And I'm, I got a lot to go there with that. That's Romans. In Romans it says our job is to be, it says to live, we are to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness. That's our job. And as we live quiet and peaceable lives, what's going to happen to the culture around us? It's going to change. Sometimes it's going to change one person at a time. Sometimes a group of people. Does that make sense? Sometimes the whole society. It just depends. But our job as believers is to pray for our leaders no matter what. No matter if I like them, dislike them, hate them, it just doesn't matter. And I think this is a great place to end. And I think to sum up a lot of what I was trying to say was whenever we come in contact with different cultures, we need to do our best to learn from them. We need to learn from each other. And as we learn from each other, God is going to allow us to move to another place as a culture, if that makes sense. We're growing. We're knowing him. Our job is to know God. Any questions? Our job, after we know God, we need to do what God tells us to do. Period. As we're doing those things, he's going to change us. He's going to change our world. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing us to, to study from you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I am so grateful. Lord, thank you for the words that are spoken, um, not only in this congregation, but that's going across the Internet, maybe in, in Japan, maybe in China. Um, and I say welcome those of you who are in, are in those other countries. And I just give you praise for all that you're going to do, Lord. And I would like to say a prayer here. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam ashir natanlano tarat imet v'kaye olam nata betokenu baruch atah Adonai notain ha'torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who gave us the Torah of truth and set everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. 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 Thank you very much.